Welcome to Wine, Women, and Writing. This is Pamela Fagan Hutchins, and this is the show where I talk with other writers about their stories with complex, authentic female characters at their core, and some of the real life or other inspirations that lead to these kick-ass characters and women. And we do it with a lot of irreverence, a lot of coffee, or depending on time of day, a lot of wine, um, and uh, the occasional dive into oversharing, if we're lucky. <laughs> Today, um, I'm going to be talking with someone I'm super excited to talk about. But before we launch into that, I wanted to remind you that if you want to look at past episodes or see upcoming episodes, because remember, it's even more fun if you've read the book first before I have the guest on the show, um, then you can go to my website, PamelaFaganHutchins.com, where you can also get my new release, um, the Maggie Box set, which is three of the full-length novels from my USA Today bestselling and Silver Falchion mystery, uh, best mystery winning series, What Doesn't Kill You. But enough with that. On to, on to the show, as they say. I'm feeling very um, theatrical today. I'm feeling very performance-oriented, so I apologize in advance if I get a little crazy, but it may be the influence of my guest, who is the fantabulous New York Times bestselling author of The Huntress, Kate Quinn. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I do have my coffee. I'm ready for shenanigans. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, and I should tell you guys that this is a miracle of modern technology because Kate's in San Diego. I'm on the face of the mountain. And so far, technology has not betrayed us. Stick with us if we have a little hiccup because it's been known to happen. That or a couple of crazed beasts running across the screen, I hear, at your house anyway. Right, Kate? Uh, the canines may decide to make an ap appearance. They do sometimes feel that their uh, presence is required whenever I happen to turn on a video camera. Oh, of course, of course. And so tell us a little bit about these fine fellows or or fellies, uh, which is it, before we meet them um, in person. Uh, I have two wonderful black rescue mutts named Caesar and Calpurnia, and they are very much my uh, companions and uh, little Praetorian guards who sit on either side of me and make sure that I am kept safe while I hit my word count because I cannot be uh, trusted to chase the mailman off on my own. <laughs> I love them already. Now the names, I've got to say the names lead me to one of my first questions, which is that up until the last year or two, you'd been writing in a different era, so to speak. Historical novelists, for those of you that have not read Kate before, and if you haven't, then I don't know really what your problem is because she's awesome. But if you haven't read her last two books, you would think that she writes about ancient Rome, the Italian Renaissance, and uh, and the dogs hearken more their names back to that era, it sounds like. Yes, I did name them kind of after a little tongue-in-cheek after Caesar and Caesar's wife, uh, and it was sort of, um, it was definitely a bit of a joke, but <laughs> I happen to have a bit of a classic background simply because my mother's a librarian, and she happened to have a degree in ancient and medieval history, so uh, that when I was growing up, I was getting stories about, you know, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, and Alexander in the Gordian Knot, and the Tudors, and the Medici's and all these wonderful folks of the past who were uh, much more real to me than any of the Disney princesses. So that's what I gravitated to as soon as I began uh, to get old enough to tell my own stories. And I got Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So your your family, your family was doing something right. Look what it produced. So now you made this transition though from ancient history to a more contemporary history, the uh, 20th century, if you will. What made you change gears from 
uh, Rome and, and Italy to modern, more modern day um, history? Well, it actually was uh, exactly two years ago today that the Alice Network was first hitting stance. And uh, yeah, it has been quite a ride. And the reason I ended up changing was, uh, well, a number of them, really. Um, one reason being is that I've never really been a one-era girl. I've always been fascinated by multiple uh, periods in history. And also, it's a way to sort of keep fresh, you know, reinvigorate your stories if you can sort of investigate a new time period. I mean, the reason that I jumped first from ancient Rome to the Renaissance was because I hit about my third book in first century Rome. And I thought that I was literally going to drive a pencil into my eye if I had to type the words T word T O G A one more time. <laughs> so hence the jump to the Renaissance. So, you know, a jump or another jump to somewhere even more distant, wasn't that big of a leap for me, a little scary because it was very, so very different and it meant a lot of research. But one of the reasons I picked the 20th century was because, you know, I'm looking around for something new, something different. And what I was seeing since this was 2015 when I was doing my research was that was when we were getting a lot of hundred year anniversaries for world war one. And you know, it was the end of 2014 start of 2015. So hundred year anniversary of the start of the war of this battle of that battle. And, you know, we were seeing that wonderful poppy monument at the tower of London pictures of it were all over the internet, you know? And so I was kept reading these articles, seeing these pictures. And I was thinking, you know, something in the first world war, I wonder what I could find. And I ended up finding the story of the historic Alice network. And then at that point it was pretty much off to the races. That's pretty cool. It's, it is so different that, that era is, well, it's still in the memory of living persons, you know, so people attach really strong personal feelings still to it, you know, so it's, it's very different than say, um, ancient Rome, for instance, in, in that, you know, you're not really dealing with something that grandma carries with her personally and is still passing down in the family. Yeah, that is, I think, the reason why war stories continue to be such a boom. I mean, because people keep asking, you know, so many war stories, especially World War II, you know, why why do we keep seeing more and more? You know, the public appetite for them just doesn't seem to be flagging. And I think that's because we are starting to come to the awareness that our veterans are aging out. And at some point, these stories will be gone once the people who carry them are dead. And it's right. this urge, I think, to learn these stories, to find out more about this generation while we can. And so that's why I think really you are seeing this boom in war stories. And I think why it probably is going to continue. It is it is something I think that's universal that you, you reach this point where you realize the stories of the you know, the people in your family are about to die out. And there's books that I'm currently considering writing that are about my grandmothers, just as I reach the realization that their stories are going to die if I don't tell them because they exactly. just passed away. So it's, it's a tough thing. And it's then the transition to the Huntress, you know, from the Alice network was world war one and you pushed it forward another huge leap to world war two. How, um, how'd you come up with the Huntress before I, before I go all fangirl on you and start talking about everything I love about it. How'd you come up with the story? <laughs> Well, I, it was really the result of a couple of different um, historical snippets that I had run across that then sort of collided in my brain and stuck to each other. Uh, the first one being a fantastic squib that I found somewhere, which was about a 
woman who was a Nazi war criminal who was found in the 60s living in plain sight as a housewife in Queens, New York. And her husband, who was American, and her American neighbors were absolutely flabbergasted that she had this horrendous past as a brutal camp guard. And they said, you know, she was, you know, gentle as the fly, wouldn't hurt anybody. You know, surely they had the wrong person, but they didn't. They did have the right person. She did have this past. And then she ended up becoming, after a very long and uh, struggle with and a lot of paperwork, the very first Nazi war criminal to be extradited from the United States to face trial in Europe. And that didn't happen until the 70s. And when it happened, the first one was a woman. Wow. And that fascinated me, the idea of, you know, for one thing, a criminal living in plain sight, you know, in, you know, nested in the epitome of, you know, white picket fence suburban America. Mm -hmm. And especially in the era we think of, you know, the leave it to beaver era, you know, the 50s and 60s wholesome it's you know nobody has any secrets you know of course that's only the outer facade we know that the 50s and 60s are not the pure and good time but the idea that someone like that could be hiding inside just a plain american family that has no idea what they're concealing was fascinating to me so that was part of it and that made me think you know a female war criminal and the urge to the um the search to find her and she so when she has gone to ground somewhere as innocuous as America in the 50s. And that was one part of it. And then the other part was, you know, I was looking for another character to wind into this. I wanted another female character who was, you know, really badass, to be honest. I wanted someone, like the book was missing something. And I happened to run across, and it's like a 2 a.m. Google hunt. I run across a a story on the Night Witches, which was the all-female regiment of bomber pilots who flew against Hitler's Eastern Front in World War II uh, from Russia. And, you know, I had actually read about them before, so they weren't totally unknown to me, but they I ran across them again at just the right time that I really sat bolt upright and is like, this is it. Like, that's who I want to be the other part of this book. So I sort of had these two ideas and then I did a lot of, you know, like mashing them together until I figured out how they would fit. And that's <laughs> pretty much the book. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made them fit because honestly, Nina Markova made the book for me. She just she was just, well, she's badass. Like you say, I mean, from the very beginning and the, the personal traumas that drove her, you know, to run away from her home and to become a pilot and the things she faced and uh, her loves and her losses. I was just the whole time. I was like, Oh, just, I was in love with her. So <laughs> I rarely had a character run away with a book on me more strongly. It's like, she sort of careened onto the page and, you know, just took off. And I was pretty much just running to keep up with her the entire time. Well, and, you know, when you think about your title, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that originally the title of the Huntress was because of the name of this Nazi war criminal that was being hunted and had been a hunter and ran away. But in many ways, Nina's the Huntress now, you know, she's going after the Huntress. And so it, it for me really worked that she was so strong because she became um, uh, the, the white knight version of that huntress, you know? Yeah. I had the idea that they would sort of be two sides of the same coin. You know, there's some parts of Nina that are dark, you know, um, Mm -hmm. There are things she does not have a lot in the way of what you might think of as moral breaks. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things that it does not really bother her to do in the slightest, which might perhaps shock uh, some of her 
uh, counterparts on her team who would think who look at her sometimes and just think you are an utter barbarian. But <laughs> still at the same time, there are things about Nina that mean that there are lines she won't cross. And those are some of the things that will enable her to, you know, hunt, hunt down the huntress. So in the end, the hunter becomes the hunted. And the title actually came around, we went through something like three or four titles. And um, so that was like the final one we landed on. But I, I do like it. I'm quite happy with it just because, um, yes, it does refer to the villainess who is nicknamed the Jägerin, which is German for the Huntress. And that is her nickname. But on the other hand, um, the way I wanted to craft it was that really all the female characters in the end have a turn at that particular moniker in their way. The Huntress, uh, the Villainess is a Huntress in a very bad way. Uh, She hunts the weak and she hunts those who are helpless. And the ones who, the uh, good ladies, the ladies who also earn that nickname, they earn that nickname because they are hunting down her, the one who hunts the weak. So everybody gets their turn at the nickname. And I guess we should also, while we're talking about strong females, uh, take the younger generation in here as well. Jordan, the 17-year-old stepdaughter whose intuitions were the only ones, the only person whose intuitions were right on point was uh, this young woman who ultimately also is very key in the hunting of the huntress. Um, And I liked that you took a, a teenage girl and you know, so many of the teenage girls in stories are a lot like my daughters. I have three daughters. Well, I say that two of my three daughters, they're a lot like two of my three daughters, but they're this, this, this girl was mature. This girl had aged beyond her years. Her mother had been lost to the family. And so she was a very mature, steady um, person without losing her teenageness. So I, I really liked her as a character and reminded me of my oldest daughter, Nicole. Hello, Nicole. <laughs> but not Samantha or Michelle, my younger ones who are like, you know, the stereotypical teenage girl there. I said it. I hope you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of fun with Jordan. I wanted, um, I, I wanted to have a point of view that was inside the family where the huntress was hiding. And yeah. I hope that, well, that's a spoiler for anybody who's listening. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but it's really is pretty obvious in the first few chapters. It's not like a big reveal that, in the class, you're miss. It's suspense, it's but it's already there. Um, right. Not a mystery, but suspense. <laughs> yeah. And the, I wanted someone who was within the point of view of the, a point of view within the family where the villainess was hiding. And that, that was important because um, I wanted to have someone who knew her intimately, but in her new life, in her new right. recreated self, where she's trying very hard to lay low, be a good, you know, just a good ordinary housewife and, uh, you know, fit in. And, the thing is, is that most villains are not, you know, mustache twirling, Disney, you know, black hat wearing villains. Most villains in real life, you know, they have human sides. They have people they love. They they are nice to their dogs. You know, nobody is, you know, very few people at least are, you know, villainous and, you know, absolutely, you know, kick the puppy horrible to everybody they meet. So to have someone on the inside who literally sees the better side of a very bad woman so that that way there's a real sense of pain when you find out who she is and what she's done seemed like an important thing because that's really the thing that hurts the most when we find out maybe that someone we love has done something terrible or just done something wrong is that you feel a sense of betrayal that like, how did I read you wrong? How is it that I can, 
still love you or want to be part of your life? Or am I making excuses for you? Because I don't understand how the person that I love could have done something like this. So that's a hard place for anybody to be in. And most people have been there to some degree. I mean, ideally, hopefully you have not found out that, you know, someone in your family is a Nazi war criminal who has killed people, but you, (laughs) everybody has the experience at some point when you are deeply disillusioned by someone you love that who maybe proves they're not quite as morally on the high horse as you thought they were, or they're capable of a little bit more unscrupulousness than you really feel comfortable with. And that's a, that's a, that's a growing up moment. So Jordan was the, the eyes for that. And I really enjoyed her point of view too, because, um, you know, Nina being a little crazy thing from Eastern edge of Russia, you know, I also kind of needed an ordinary girl to sort of balance the reader. So it's not all Nina's extremely skewed at times worldview. And you also get a more uh, normalized one. And in addition, you know, going back to originally that story you found about um, the Nazi war criminal who was living in plain sight, you don't really get a sense of the three dimensions of that unless you have that embed, because otherwise it's just a, oh, wow, that's a crazy story. But you really felt it in this book. You felt her camouflage. You felt the moments when it slipped. You felt the moments in which the family didn't want to see what was in front of them. And it just became... So that's what made it spooky to me. That's what, because, you you know, you kept thinking, what is she going, you know, this, this woman has the capacity to do such horrible things and they, they want to love her. They do love her. And, and she did wonderful things. She did kind things. So it was, it really kind of give you the, you know, the, on the back of your neck, hair stand up on the back of your neck to think about, oh my gosh. I looked at my husband. I'm like, is there anything you want to tell me? Yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a big compliment. I'm glad I could sow doubt in your uh, home life. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, but it was another thing too. I remember thinking of that, like, I think it was Hitchcock who said, you know, like when a bomb is under a table and it goes off, that's action. When a bomb is under a table and it doesn't go off and everybody keeps playing cards on the table over it, that's suspense. Yes. So it was one of the things too, that I kind of thought of my um, villainess as a little bit of an unexploded bomb where the reader knows she's capable of some really terrible things if she's threatened, but the people in her life don't know this. And hopefully, you know, you will grow to love the people who are in her life. So therefore you're on pins and needles. It's like, right. is she going to hurt them before the good guys get to her in time, you know, because she could, if she, you know, feels like she's threatened. Right. So uh, it's the unexplo- she's a little bit of an unexploded bomb too. I love that analogy. That's very much what it felt like. Um, and so in general, you know, when I was thinking about reading this book and I, I, I'm trying to recall the exact circumstances. I think it was before I knew anything about the book that your publicist set up this interview. And I'd been talking to Christina McMorris and she was talking about, we were offline when we were doing the interview and she was, had seen your name on my list and she said, Oh, you're going to love her. You're going to love this book. And, and I did, (laughs) I just (laughs) did. And it isn't often that I just truly fall in love with a book and and really get immersed like that. So thank you for a really authentic experience as a reader where I just, I, as soon as you had Nina in that story, you had me, but it wasn't 
that it was all of the different characters coming together in creating the full tapestry that made it. She just, she hooked me and then I was a sucker. I just, (laughs) well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) You're welcome. So now how do you top the Huntress and the Alice Network and your other great books? What are you working on now for us? Um, The next book is tentatively titled The Rose Code, and it is going to be about the female codebreakers of Bletchley Park. Uh, Three very different women who all are set to work at this isolated mansion and estate grounds in uh, Buckinghamshire at the very outset of war. And they are put to work there in various different posts, helping to break the German military codes, which are supposed to be completely unbreakable, and which this huge, diverse team at Bletchley Park slowly wedged their way into that unbreakable code and continued to break those codes for the entirety of the war. And they did so so successfully, it's estimated they shortened the war by at least two years. Now, is this going to be suspense? Um, you know, what's what's your... What's your feel? What's your theme on this one? I think there'll be some suspense as well. Um, A lot of the book is going to be taking place during the war years and, you know, uh, dealing with the women and how they're, what their different jobs are. And also as they deal with the stress of secrecy, the fact that they can't tell their parents, their husbands, their boyfriends, anything about what they do because of the Official Secrets Act. Uh, A lot of the story will deal with that, but there is also going to be a secondary story taking place after the war in which you see the three women in vastly different circumstances, no longer even on speaking terms and forced to come back together to solve a mystery that has its roots in their war years at Bletchley Park. Cool. I well, it sounds like that that history, um, your ability to see the uh, um, possibility in history is a very unique and fun part of your brain. So, history, research, or writing, which do you like better? If you had to, oh, um, I suppose the. I, oh goodness, I love the early stage of plotting a book where I'm sort of daisy chaining around in history, finding historical tidbits that I can put in, you know, the book isn't firmly is a little in flux at that point and is not um, fully set. So I can still, once I, if I find something really cool, it's like, Ooh, I can tack the story around so I can include this. I like that stage because it's, it's, everything is very shiny and new. I haven't, uh, you know, the project is, you know, perfect. It's, you know, I haven't even remotely imagined hitting that stage where, you know, I hate it and I hate everything about it. And I want to throw it in the fire and never speak of it again. And why don't I take up a career as a dog walker? Cause that would be more fun. And, you know, the, the early stages are a lot of fun, but you really, they all have their high points. Um, I like drafting. I like editing because, you know, I actually do like editing, although um, first stage editing, at least, because then it feels um, you don't have to put something on that terrifying blank page. You just have to fix what's already there, which can be daunting, but at least it's already there to fix. So, uh, and I do like the research too. It's entirely possible to, you know, go down the rabbit hole, looking something up just because it's interesting and then realize that, you know, like half your workday is gone. <laughs> I try not to do that too much because, you know, writing time is precious, but, you know, I think you can't get into the historical fiction business without a certain uh, affinity for the rabbit hole, regardless, yeah. uh, like it or not. <laughs> oh, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it is, it is, 
I don't know, when you get to the stage where you have to fill that blank page, um, for me, at least, there's that feeling of you just want to turn back one more time and look for one more thing. That blank page is so daunting. Once you get going, it's fun. But oh, that research. Oh, it's it's limitless possibility. It's explosions of excitement. And then the writing is like, boom, boom, <laughs> bang your head, boom. boom. It can feel like that, yeah. <laughs> and isn't it funny that we find ourselves writers and we all talk about, and then there's the pain of writing and then there's the horrible blank page. But yet it's a, uh, it's something we keep doing. We just, yes, it is. that is true. <laughs> um, and so with respect to um, your writing and what you're working on, are you working on a next book after that? Do you have new ideas that come to you when you're still writing the old book that you indulge yourself in every now and then? Or do you stay focused and disciplined on the task at hand? Well, uh, there's always a certain amount of crossover. I read a really great uh, tweet the other day, found it somewhere on Twitter where someone said, you know, writers are promote are talking about what they wrote five years ago, um, promoting what they wrote two years ago, editing what they wrote last year, you know, revising what they wrote last month, uh, thinking about what they're going to write, you know, five years from now. So, you know, that is true to some degree. You know, there's always something where I'm stretching uh, past and present. I do stay focused on the book at hand and um, try, I, I don't write two books at the same time unless mm-hmm. I've done, you know, maybe some crossover like uh, collaborative novels. I do collaborative novels for fun and with uh, other authors, in which case my, um, that I'm only responsible for, you know, for like one sixth of the book instead of the whole thing. So that's a little different. <laughs> and even so it works better if they're very different time periods, you know, so I'm not mixing them up really in my head. Um, so I try to stay focused on the book at hand, especially while I've got to crank it out. Um, although I will say that is the time when new book ideas tend to come to call. And that's because your brain is desperately tired of the slog and wants to play. And even though you don't have time to indulge it. And um, I always kind of make the analogy that this is like when, you know, you're maybe the, the relationship is in is a bad patch and, you know, you still love that significant other of yours, but they're kind of going through a period where they're sitting, doing nothing but sitting in front of the TV and grousing. And that is exactly when Alexander Skarsgård knocks on your door with a bottle of champagne and a hotel room <laughs> key. And, you know that you shouldn't, that you you need to stick with the, the relationship you've got and, you know, tell Alexander to get in line. But, you know, it's like, but there he is. And, you know, he didn't and even seen big little lies. So, and, you know, he, you know, <laughs> you got to stay away. So from <laughs> that's kind of like what that's kind of like how I think of it when a new book idea, like, you know, burst full flower into your head, like right at the time when you do not have any time to do anything, but maybe like jot down a few notes about it and tell it to wait for a few months when you finally got time to think about what you're writing next. <laughs> My book and I are going through marriage counseling first. I'll talk to you later. If there's a possibility, we'll be getting together. So, <laughs> Ugh. well, um, I sure do appreciate, you know, you had rescheduled me in when your schedule got tight. And I really appreciate that you stuck with it and spent the time to talk with me because truly, um, I, yeah, hats off to your publicist who, who booked you with me because now you have a, a, a fan and an evangelist because I really, really enjoyed um, book and can't wait for reading all, running the table, reading all the rest of them. Um, anything you'd like to tell listeners before we start our wrapping it up sequence um, events coming up or things that they need to know or where they can go to get the most 
excellent and up-to-date information on all things Kate Quinn. Um, you could always check my website. I do have current events on my events page, so you can check where I'm going to be showing up next. I'm going to Northern California later in this month, the San Francisco area, for a couple events. And I'm also going to, right after that, to the uh, Historical Novel Society Conference in uh, Maryland. So I'll be presenting there. I hope I see you guys there. Um, and I do have another release coming out this year. It is titled Ribbons of Scarlet. It is the collaborative novel about the women of the French Revolution, which I co-wrote with five other female author friends, all fabulous. And that is available for pre-order any retailer that you like. And it's coming out October 1st. What a fun project that would be. I, that sounds like a fabulous thing. So you guys check that out. In the meantime, as always, please know that this is a solely owned and copyrighted production of Authors on the Air uh, Global Radio Network. And my, I, as always, thank my fantabulous producer, Pam Stack, for her love and support. Thank you, Pam. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Um, and for the rest of you out there, before we bid uh, Kate adieu, Please go out and find yourself a good book. It would be awesome if it was The Huntress, if you did not follow instructions and read it before this interview. But if not, then um, swing back and catch a couple of those old ones, um, the Alice Network and some of her ancient Rome and Italian Renaissance nuggets. And Kate, this has been really a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the show. Come back anytime. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I hope I can come back after the next release. Awesome. And the rest of you take care. Talk to you next week.